Okay, so let's continue with great Jewish photographs. So this is one of my favorites. This is called Always Being Photographed, and it involves, uh, it's a beautiful picture, and it's Rup Shleim Arbach speaking to the Kapishnitz Rebbe. The Kapishnitz Rebbe was one of the great Hasidic uh, masters. He was a descendant of a very regal line of Rebbes. He was very close to the Ravaren Cutler. He did a lot after the war for Klal Yisrael. Ravaren, like, used to call him the Rebbe. Like, that's a big compliment for Ravaren to call somebody the Rebbe and refer to him. He was, uh, I think he was on the Meatus Kedela and he was held in great esteem by all segments of Klal Yisrael. So the story behind this picture is that uh, the Rebbe came to Eretz Yisrael to attend the chasna, and I think it was his granddaughter was marrying either a son or a, um, a grandson of Rav Shlomo Zalman. Anyway, him and Rav Shlomo Zalman Auerbach became mechutanim at this wedding. I believe the shadchan was the panamicharov. He made the shidduch. But it was an interesting because the, the Kabbalah's Rebbe was in America, and, and he came to Eretz Yisrael for the chasna, of his uh, of his grandchild, so and the the first time that they met each other, Shlomo Zalman the Kvizar Rebbe was at that occasion. So at the end of the wedding, the next night or so, so the Rebbe was about to go to the airport, you know, to uh, to leave to go back to America. So before he went, he went to Shlomo Zalman's house uh, in in Shari Chesed to wish him goodbye. And at the end of their visit, they went out together and they waited for the car that would take the Rebbe to the airport. But, you know, they call the taxi and a lot of times the taxis are late in coming. And Rabbi Shana Zaman sent someone to bring a chair for the Rebbe uh, and, uh, and urged him to sit. So the Rebbe, though, adamantly refused. He says, I'm not sitting in that chair, I don't care. And he explained that when he was young, he heard that he heard from his father, who was a big tzaddik, that throughout life you should always imagine <coughs> that a photographer is constantly nearby, snapping shots of every move that you make. If you will not be proud of your actions as depicted in the photos, you should refrain from carrying out the action. That's always like a great way of, of thinking, of deciding whether or not should I do this or should I not do this? Should I watch this? Should I not watch it? Should I go here? Should I not go there? Imagine if there was a photographer that was snapping your picture at this given moment. Is that something that you would someday be proud of that picture or not? If you'd be proud of it, then do it. Fine. If you have no problem with it, you think it's cool, it's fine, then that's fine. But like, if you're not going to be proud of it, then don't do it. And the Rebbe concluded, I just reflected on my father's advice and said to myself, if I sit down here in the chair on the street while Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach is standing up next to me, how preposterous will such a picture appear? So I'm, I can't sit down. Like There's a picture of me sitting with Rabbi Shlomo Zalman standing. He says, doesn't, doesn't pass. It's not appropriate. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, when he heard this from his new mechutin, was very inspired and would often tell people that there is a Jew 
who senses at all times that his actions are being recorded above. This is the picture of them at a chasna together. It's uh, just as a picture that touches up this, uh, the actual, the original picture, I think uh, the Panamacharov was sitting right over here. But I sort of cut him out because I wanted to close in on the two people involved in the story. But I really, it would have been nice to have the Panamacharov also because he was the shavchan. But, but it's, uh, it's such a true lesson. If you stop and think about it, you know, that we are being recorded. And we spoke about the other day how the Chavetz Chaim would look at modern inventions and say why they were invented. Why was the camera invented? It was for, you'd think, well, to take pictures of people. And the Chavetz Chaim argued that, no, the, the camera was invented because it's a Musser schmooze, it's a vehicle to deliver Musser, that what? that whatever you do is being filmed upstairs. There's always a video going constantly of you, and they're going to they're gonna play it for you. Sometimes, like, I'm walking down the hall to my office, and I'm, like, I'm very hungry, and I already have, like, uh, my pizza in hand, and I'm like, you know, maybe I should just, uh, you know, take a bite of it, you know, while I'm walking to my office. Nobody sees. Then there's a camera, like, in the middle of, you know, and it's like, all right, you know, I'm not going to do it, you know, because somebody's watching. Sometimes I do do it between me and you, but like, you know, but sometimes it's tough. Like, you know, somebody's looking at you, you know, maybe one of the guards or they'll have it on a recording. If they ever want to like, you know, get me in trouble, I guess they would be able to, you know, use it against me. So if we would think like that, like every minute, like, you know, right now we're being photographed, we're being filmed. Chavetz Chaim said the phone teaches us a Moshe about that when you speak in one place, it's heard in another place. Whatever you say is being heard. It's being recorded. You know, in the, before a phone was invented, it was, or a camera was in it, it's, it's hard to really get into that. Like, a, you know, or even more so, like, um, you know, now, like, with everything that you say, there's, like, this uh, technology, that voice recognition technology, very cool, right? Like, you're able to, like, sort of, you know, like, they'll put, like, automatic uh, subtitles on uh, on what you're saying in real time because, you know, it... Did you ever see that? Like, it, it's like... Sometimes you see it on YouTube. They're, like, videos and, like... Yeah, automatic automatic uh, subtitles. It's amazing. It's real tech, and it's pretty good. I mean, unless they say some yeshivish words or Hebrew yeah. words in the middle, and then it says, like, whatever the closest thing is to it. But... You know, so you think like, ah, eh, nobody's going to record me. Nobody's going to. There's no transcripts in Shemayim. Well, why not? If I could make a transcript of like this conversation right now, you know, or texts or whatever, and there's a there's always it's always there somewhere, right? Even if the FBI wants to track trace your text, they could probably get to your phone somehow and trace it. So, Hakadosh Baruch Hu is a lot smarter than the FBI and you know, Steve Jobs and everybody, and he knows how to record things also. He knows how to have a constant transcript, and he has constant footage, and he has constant recordings of everything. And it's a, it's a little bit spooky to think about, right? It's uh, maybe a little bit uncomfortable. But the Chavetz Chaim says, these are the lessons that we should take from technology. And this is what the... Uh, so we could talk about it, but Maisa, as soon as this year is over, we're going to go back and do our thing again, right? And we're not going to really change that much. We're not going to necessarily change. I'll still be eating my pizza in the hallway and you'll still be doing whatever you're doing. 
but the people like the Kapishan Sarev. I mean, Rosh Zalman knew this Vard also. It's not like well, he wasn't unaware of the fact that there's an Ayin Raya. The Mishnah says there's Ayin Raya. And some Rosh Zalman knew the Mishnah, like we know it, but, um, you know, that there's an, an all-seeing eye. But to see in real life, in real action, that there was a, a person in this universe that actually lived every second with this cognizance of the fact that there's a Bari Ayin, there's an Ayin Raya that's looking and it's and that's always recording everything that we're doing, was very, very uh, in, inspiring for Abshlem Azalim. Okay, let's learn another, another piece together. What do we do when we run out of pieces here? Oh, this is great. I don't think we, I don't think we did this together. Right, there's a Yid by the name of Reblazer Silver, Reblazer Silver. This is what he looked like. Very uh, dignified, a tremendous guy in learning, a tremendous tamachacham. And he was born in 1882. He died in 1968. That's the year that I was born. Um, and he spearheaded many great movements in America, such as the Agudas Rabbanim and Agudas Israel. So he was like, he's the reason why I'm speaking by the Agudah Convention. Because of him, right, we're all going to be going together on, in a couple of Fridays to the Agudah Convention. So... Um, and he always wore this regal hat. This, it was called a cylinder hat. It's sort of like we would call it a top hat, but in the old days they called it a cylinder hat. I think, it, I think it's like crushable, right? You could like sort of like put it down and then you have to like just pop it up. But it was, uh, it was like distinct to him. Like there weren't too many G'dayli Yisrael, you know, that wore this. But this was his hat. This is what he wore as a chash of a Shabbos hat. And, and he looked very distinctive in it. And... And they say it mirrored his own ramrod straight personality. The top hat that was so straight, his son used to say that's how he was. He was very straight, very honest, very upfront about everything. And he was, uh, he was really one of the leaders um, during the war. And after the war, he was one of the founders of the Vadat Very involved. He went, there's famous pictures of him in an American army uniform, and he was driven around after the war in an American jeep, uh, visiting the different DP camps and speaking to different important people there. And I think he was the one, if I'm not mistaken, that went into monasteries looking for children, Jewish children that were given over by their parents before the war. Famous story, like he went in and he said, Shema Yisrael, and they all started, the Jewish kids remembered that from the, when they were little before the war, and they started crying, and he chapped them all. But the interesting thing about this, and I, that's what I bring here, is that here in Yeshiva, um, we had the good fortune uh, of hosting on Shabbos in Yantif uh, Rabbi Warman. Rabbi Warman, Rabbi Shlema, Warman, Shlema Levi Warman, was one of his biggest Talmidim. One of her Blazer Silva's greatest, closest uh, Talmidim was Rabbi Warman, and he happened to live right here, like like a, a quarter of a block away from Yeshiva, across the street on 150th. He used to dive in at a certain shul, and then that shul moved a little further away. He couldn't walk, so we had, you know, we, we had the, it was a great pickup for us. He used to come, and he's a tremendous Amchachm. He wrote maybe 11, 12 volumes of Sarim, but like really of the highest level, like of Lamdas in Lashna Kaidish, and like, you know, people are real time to Chamim, 
you know, felt that it was like a masterpiece, and he wrote 12 of them. He told me once that he had, uh, he had a thousand, over a thousand shtikloch, over a thousand real lamdisha essays. Each essay, if we would work on one, it would take us a long, like months and months and months, and then it would still not be good. Like he, you know, was able to like whip them out like so quickly because he knew everything. You know everything. And Blazer Silva used to teach him. He told me, like, you know, he taught him how to write. Like, he would give him um, his his notes of sheer or whatever, or shtickle that he would write. And he would take a red pen, he would cross out things, he would highlight it like a teacher would. And he taught him how to write. He taught him the art of writing a piece of tyra. So, Rabbi Warman told me once that when... Rabbi Silver was giving a shear to his students, and he was there. I think he was giving a shear in his house. So he was interrupted by an urgent overseas phone call from the Briskarov, Rabbi Zev Halevi Salvechik. And Rabbi Warman said immediately he went and he put on his his cylinder hat. I mean, he didn't. He didn't want to just wear a yarmulke. Speaking to the briskarov, so he put on his chashav shabbos hat, a cylinder hat, and he stood on his feet. And when he finished his conversation, uh, only then did he take his hat off and sit down. And afterwards, he explained to his students that this is the proper way to show honor to the Gadladar, who he was speaking to, the Briskarov was Gadladar, if I'm speaking to him on the phone, I have to stand up, I have to wear my Shabbos hat. So young Shlema Warman asked him, I don't understand, the Briskarov, you're on a phone, you're, it's, he can't see you, so what kind of honor are you giving him? Was he, you, you, he needs your, you to put on a hat? He can't see your hat, he can't see that you're standing, so what's the point? How is that Kabbalah So Rabbi Silver answered him, do you think the honor is for the briskarov? Does he need my honor? The honor I accord him was for me. It is obligatory upon me to act this way so as to reinforce my own reverence for the Torah. I mean, it's not, I'm not, you don't give Kavadat Torah so that the rabbi feels good about himself. You give Kavadat Torah so that you, it, it like gets stuck into you, a chashivas for, for Torah. It's not so much about the person that's receiving it. Oh, let's let Rebbe feel good. Let's stand up for him. It's about if you stand up for a Talmud Chacham, then that does a lot for you. It makes you appreciate Torah that much more. I once saw from Rav Pam, Rav Pam's always like, Rav Pam was very humble. You know, he was very, very simple. He lived in a very Pashara house. He didn't wear a long frock and a, you know, an up hat. He wore a little down hat. He wore a short like jacket, a regular suit. He was a very simple man. He didn't want anything fancy. He was very understated. He didn't, even though he was like one of the biggest he was like the head of the Mayatzis Kedayla the head of Chinechatzmai. He was the head of Shuvu. He could, have, he could have definitely worn a frock and everybody would, would you know, would understand that. He didn't want to. He didn't want to wear a frock. He didn't want to wear an up hat. He, he just wanted to be simple. I think he didn't even sit on the front of the base Madrash, on the Mizrach land. He didn't sit on the front wall of the base Madrash. He sat behind the bima. He was very, very anivistic. And he meant, it wasn't like anivas, which is a gaiva. You know, sometimes anivas is gaiva. He was purely, really pashat and humble. So... It would bother him, being that he was so simple and so humble, it would bother him when people would stand up for him when he came into a room. 
Like, don't stand up for me. What am I? I'm not a tamachacham. I'm not this. I'm not that. What are you standing up for? He got very upset. And then he said that he saw tshuva. I don't remember whose tshuva it was. It, it was maybe... I don't remember. I don't want to misquote it. Anyway, it was a, a tshuva from somebody, and he said that that a person gets schar for standing up for somebody that he perceives is a tamar chacham, even though he's not really a tamar chacham. So let's say you go, you know, let's say there's somebody that comes into the room and you think he's a tamar chacham and you stand up for him. In Shemayim, let's say, they're, they're like laughing, this guy ain't no tamar chacham, he doesn't deserve any kabbat or the guy can't make a, he doesn't know anything. But you stood up for him because you were a tamar chacham, because you thought he was a tamar chacham. In your mind, he was a tamar chacham, so it's not, does that count or not? Do you get points in Shemayim for Kabbalah Torah or not? Because Lamaisi didn't do any. He stood up for a guy that wasn't a Tamachachim. So this tshuva said that you do get schar because you stood up for who you considered, you thought he was a Tamachachim. So you were given Kabbalah to the Torah. The fact that, you know, Klape Shemaya, that in heaven they don't consider this person a Tamachachim, that's something that, uh, that's not, it's not uh, his fault, it's, you know, it's not his problem. He stood up for somebody, he thought he was a Tamachachim. So since Rapam found that tshuva, he didn't mind so much that people would stand up for him because even though he felt that he himself wasn't worthy of receiving Kabbalah but at least he's giving people schar for Kabbalah because they're considering him to be a Tamachachim. This is my favorite picture. I'm a huge fan of the Panamichirov. I think we've spoken about him a lot. The Panamichirov was, um, he was born in 1886. He died in 1969. His name was Rabbi Yosef Shlomo Kahneman. And he was a heroic visionary. He basically replanted Tyra and Eretz Yisrael from the, after the Holocaust. He himself was a very big Tamachachim. He was like one of the biggest Tamachachim in Europe before the war. As a young man, he was already the Rav of the city of Panovich, which was considered in Europe to be one of the, it was one of the largest and most prestigious kehillas in, in Eastern Europe. And this young Rav, the Panovich Rav, um, was the Rav there at a very young age, maybe in his 30s already he was a Rav. So tremendous Tamachacham. And, and in, in Panovich in Lithuania, he built it up and, you know, there's a big shul there a yeshiva there, there was Beis Yaakov's there, there was orphanages. He was a tremendous builder. He always, he always built. In fact, I saw once a quote from him that you know, he, his, uh, his father-in-law was a very wealthy man. And he, he knew that you know, he was getting a great son-in-law, a brilliant young Tamachacham, and he wanted him to just sit and learn. But like right after the chasne, I already saw that he didn't have zitzfleisch. You know, he didn't have the ability... To see, even though he was a massive tamachacham, but like he always wanted to do, he wanted to build, he wanted to help, he wanted to go, he wanted to conquer. And the Panavichirov said that if you would lock me in a in a basement, like in a dungeon, with all the food I need and all the sarim in the world there, he says I would figure out a way to break out of the dungeon and get out. 
That's not to say that he didn't love learning Torah. Of course, he, he, he lived for Torah. But he was, he was a different, you know, every person is, has, a, has a different makeup in life. There's like, the Chaim Vital said that there's four different elements in the world. There's fire, and then there's wind, and there's dirt, and there is water. So in each of these, and every human being is made up of a different one of these elements. And based on whatever element you're made from, that's how your tchunas hanefesh is, that's the way you behave. So if let's say you're fire, that you're like one of these guys that are always like excited and doing and, and pumping and, you know, always the, the you know, the center of the, 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 everything surrounds you and you're building and you're going and you're doing, that's fire. Dirt is something like you're a little bit more lethargic, a little bit quieter, a little bit lazier maybe. Um, you know, and then one is more ruchnias, wind is like a ruchnias like a person, and, and water is very passionate, it like flows like passionate, but anyway, every person is different, he said he's fire I don't know if he said that about himself, or that was my but that's who he was, he was a builder he was somebody that, he never sat still, so he escaped the holocaust by the skin of his teeth and he made it to Israel with only um I think he only had one son with him, if I'm not mistaken. I think one son survived. His family all, all perished in the war. And, um, and his whole community, his Talmidim, the Beis Yaakov, everybody, the Nazis killed out the whole city. There's nothing left from him. He was like one of the only people that survived Panovich. And he came to Eretz Yisrael. And 1942, right, which was in the middle of the Holocaust, and... Eretz Yisrael was on the brink of being attacked. I don't know how many of you know that part of history. Like, you always think of the Holocaust happening in Europe, not in America, and not in Eretz Yisrael. But no, it, was, it came this close. Hitler came this close to attacking Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, there was a famous uh, uh, general, his name was Rommel, they called him the Desert Fox, and his troops were literally perched on the, on the threshold of Eretz Yisrael, and it's not for now, but there's tremendous hashkacha pratis, how he, he basically went home. And he didn't, uh, he, 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 I think it was his wife's birthday, maybe. And he, he, he didn't do, he didn't attack at the last minute. The Arabs thought they were attacked. The Arabs already wrote their names on people's houses in Eretz Yisrael. The, you know, they called dibs on, this is my house, that's your house. Like, you know, they already thought that this was over. The Nazis are coming. Can you imagine, Rechman al the Nazis would have come into Eretz Yisrael, what that would have been like. So, Vakarish Baruch Hu saved Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And, uh, and the Panamit Shirov in 1942 had a cornerstone laying ceremony in the yeshiva to build this new yeshiva. He got a hill in, in, in B'nai Brak and, um, and he decided, I'm going to build the Panovich yeshiva that was destroyed in Panovich in Lithuania, my yeshiva, I'm rebuilding it here. And he did. And then somebody said, and he was saying like he was giving all speech, I was going to rebuild Tyre in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael then was very shvach, there's no yeshiva, very few yeshivas of any, and very little Tyre being learned. And he said, and the famous line that somebody, when somebody asked him, Rav, are you dreaming? There's, the Nazis are about to come into the country and destroy us all, and you're making a yeshiva now for hundreds of boys like that don't exist? Like what? So he says, I may be dreaming. You're right. He says, oh, you could accuse me of being a dreamer, but unlike other dreamers, I am not asleep. 
I'm not asleep. I'm very wide awake. I'm dreaming, but it's good to dream. As long as you're not sleeping, you know, it's good to dream if you're able to carry it out. And he did. He carried it out. He raised a lot of money and he built this yeshiva. And, um, and this is a, a, an amazing, this is what he looked like, the Panamitcharov. And this was, uh, I, I don't think there's a nicer picture in Klal Yisrael's history. It was Panavich Yeshiva being built, okay, and you see like the workers with their temples with their caps on it and the, and the scorching sun, and the Panavich Yerav with his full regalia, with his full, uh, his frock and his hem, is walking on the construction site, on the planks like of, of the building to inspect and to make sure that everything was being built, you know, as he wanted it to be. Um, there's a story told of how the Panamacharov once assisted the workers unload and carry a delivery of heavy steel beams at the construction site. Running over to the Rav to alleviate his burden, Rav Shmuel Rizovsky, who was the famous Rashiva of Panovich at the time, heard the Rav repeating to himself with great emotion, L'shem binyan mitzvah, L'shem binyan taira. For the sake of building a mitzvah, he is having kavana, and for the sake of building taira. And that's the, that's the great Panamacharov. Um, and he ended up not only building a yeshiva in Bnei Brak, he built another yeshiva in Ashtod. Um, he also built a girls' school. He built, um, he built a, an orphanage, or maybe more than one orphanage. And he named the orphanage Base Avis. Base Avis, the House of Fathers. It's a funny, name to, funny way to name a, an orphanage, right? What do you mean a House of Fathers? So these are little kids. So he would say that they, they lost their parents, but he wants, so sometimes when you lose a parent, Leoleno, like you feel like you can't be a parent yourself because like I don't know what a parent is. So he wanted to give them the chizuk and the strength to know that someday you will be parents and you're going to be amazing at it. So he called the orphanage Base Aves, that you're, this is the house of fathers. You're going to all be future fathers. Someday you're going to be married. You're going to be happy. You're going to build a beautiful mishpacha. And, and you're, you yourself are going to thrive throughout you know, the rest of your life. There's an amazing gadol. And Mitzvah Hashem, we should all be zeichet to follow in these great gedalim's footsteps.